Well, I brought something to show the children. Some of you might know what one of these things. Oh, yeah, Maurice one. Whoa. It's a, a dumbbell. And I think I know why they call them dumbbells. It kind of looks like a bell, I guess, on one end. But I think the real reason they call it a dumbbell is people like me are dumb enough to buy it because we know we're not going to use it. Um, but it was going to be a good lesson for the kids because we were going to talk about carrying the burdens and how heavy they can be. And, you know, when we first maybe sin or experience some form of guilt in our life, it doesn't feel that bad in the very beginning. But much like a weight, when you pick it up for the first time, it doesn't feel like it's that heavy. But as you hold on to it longer and longer and longer, even though the weight, the physical weight, doesn't change, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier and makes it hard for us to function. And the best way to deal with that is simply this. You don't have to wait till it gets too heavy. And you don't have to carry it your entire life. All you have to simply do, put it down. Today's passage of Scripture will be coming from the book of Psalms, chapter 32. It's called The Joy of Forgiveness. David said, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not change or charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. And when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained and in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sin. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father God, we come before you today. And again, thank you for being with us today. And Father, we just ask that you send your spirit into this house today to roam from person to person, heart to heart. And let us hear and experience a word from you that would be empowering and bring hope to life. Father, I ask that you empty me of any desire to speak my own will, but fill me with your spirit so that every word I would speak would be pleasing to you and come from your throne. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I like the way David starts this out because he starts everything out here on a positive note. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And I'll, I'll, I'll read that and I, and I celebrate what David is saying there, that in his life he experienced many adventures and he had many mishaps in his life which caused him great depression, great pain and great sorrow and many times great troubles along his journey. But through it all, he was able to come back each and every time and exclaim to the people the power of God working in his life, how joyful it is when one's transgression is forgiven. See, I think sometimes that 
as a Christian, we forget about the joy-filled life, that, that even though we experience the, the healing power of God in our lives and we experience forgiveness, that we tend to carry on our lives not living the Spirit-filled life, not experiencing the same joy that David experienced in his life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today because those things that we hold on to that, that we need to let go of are stopping us from experiencing God's joy. And David shows us here how it worked in his life. How the transgressions and the guilt impacted his life and how giving everything to God transformed his experience daily. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. I love that he started out with those statements there and here's why he's talking about a transgression we all have transgressions in our life whether we want to admit it or not it's part of who we are as a people we were created perfect in the garden but when man fell sin took its place in our life transgression may not be what you think it means really and truly it's a, a basic idea of rebellion some would say it would be like a child for those of us who have raised children when we tell our children, you know, this is how we want you to live or this is what we want you to do and this is how we want you to, to act. And even though they know better, they make a conscious decision to, to do what it is that they want to do. The basic idea of rebellion is to do the very acts that oppose God's will in our life. And you say, I know what you're talking about because sometimes God wants me to, to put down the fork and not eat as much at the dinner table. Or maybe sometimes God wants me to love my neighbor just a little bit more than what I do. Or maybe God wants me to forgive my spouse or my friend. But I choose to hang on to unforgiveness. It's a choice we make. It's how we decide that we're going to live each and every moment of our life. I can't choose how I feel, but I always can choose how I respond to how I feel. And sometimes how I feel isn't always what's best for my neighbor or my friend or my spouse. Sometimes how I feel only benefits me in that moment of pity or that moment of sorrow that I experience for myself. And David experienced those very things in his life. Not just once and not just twice, but, but many times when, when he was faced with the opportunity to make decisions that were healthy and that would benefit others instead of himself. You know, one night David woke up and he couldn't sleep and he, he went outside and started walking on the rooftop of his, of his uh, dwelling place. And during that time, he, he looked down and he saw what he thought at the time was the most beautiful woman that he had ever seen in his life. 
Now, David knew right from wrong. But he looked upon that, that object, the desire. And he let that desire take hold of his heart and take hold of his mind. And instead of turning around and, and fleeing from that desire, he, he took that desire and he embraced it. And, and he didn't just desire it from afar, but, but he called on his people, said, go into this town, find this person, find out who she is, and in turn, bring her to me. And would you believe that that's what he did? David, the man that Scripture says was the man after God's own heart was already in his heart and in his mind creating an awful, sinful act. And it was a transgression because he knew better. But he chose in that moment of time to, to act in a state of rebellion. Rebellion simply stated as in, I know what's right and I know what's wrong, but I'm going to choose to do it the other way anyways to stand against the authority of God and his word. And long story short, it didn't work out too good for David. Much like many people, when they experience sin in their lives, it, it, that negative impact comes in. Some will say that it's my conscience acting on me because I, I went against what I knew was wrong. Some will say it was the mighty hand of God sitting upon me, bringing conviction to my heart. And, you know, I wouldn't argue with either one of them to be wrong. But only the person experiencing that at that moment can decide which it is, one or the other or both. And just like many men, under those same circumstances, Instead of seeing what's right and, and, and moving forward, making a conscious decision of, of what's right and, and act on it, he falls prey to the desire of his heart. And he gives in to the lust and, and carries on with a, an unlawful relationship with Bathsheba. And in order to, to correct it, instead of trying to correct the problem, he tries to rationalize the problem in his own mind. And, and what he does is he winds up sending Bathsheba back home. And then she comes back and reports sometime later, you know what? Now, David, I, I'm pregnant. You're married. You're a king. I'm married. My husband is a soldier in your army who's out on the battle lines. And instead of David accepting responsibility for it, he let the guilt and the burden of the sin that he was carrying bog him down and control the way that he thinks. Instead of acting rationally, this is what David did. He sent message to the front line to Joab, who was in charge of the army at the time. He said, I, what I, want, you to do. I want you to find this person's husband, Uriah, and I want you to send him back to the palace. See, David didn't have any intentions of coming clean about his sin none whatsoever he was contemplating on how to get himself out of this situation that he got himself into so when uriah came to the palace and stood before david david said uriah this is what i want you to do i know there's a battle going on out here i know that you're part of that army and i really appreciate the hard work and the effort that you you put into defending our nation so ultimately what he said is, I want to reward you. Go home to your wife. 
it does, doesn't, I mean, doesn't that really sound like something that we would do? I crashed my car today, and I don't want to tell anybody about it, so I'm going to park it over here and come out of the store and say, oh, my goodness, somebody hit my car. How did that happen? must have been that person over there. And that's what David was doing. He, he, he created the situation. He couldn't deal with the responsibility of it. He couldn't deal with the burden of it. And he was having a hard time carrying the guilt. So instead of hitting it head on, taking it to God, and handling it properly, he called that woman's husband off the battle lines and was going to make it look like everything was nice and calm at his house. But Uriah, he was an awesome man. He was an amazing man, a man of character. Even when the king ordered him, go to your house, he would not do it. He took his mat and he slept at the gate of the city. And this is his response. This is why he said he slept at the gate of the city. My men are in battle. They're out here defending our country, defending your honor. It's unfit for me to enjoy the pleasures of home when others are living a life of such sacrifice. And man, you know what? And up to that point, David thought he had everything worked out and figured out. Then when he woke up the next morning and found out that Uriah did not go home and that he slept at the gate, <coughs> he took it to the next level. He's like, man, I've got to deal with this problem somehow, some way. People cannot find out what's happened. They cannot find out what I have done. So in an act of desperation, he writes a letter. And he gives that letter to, to Uriah and tells Uriah to, to take that letter back to the battlefield to give it to Joab. Joab read the letter and it said this to Joab. I want you to take Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, and I want you to put him back into battle. And I want you to find the hottest point in battle where all the fighting is going on. And I want you to put him on that front line. And then once he's there and the battle begins, withdraw and leave him standing there so that he will die. It's awful, isn't it? The things that, that people will do to cover up their sin, to, to keep from confronting the burden that guilt has put upon us. But there's good news, and that's what we want to celebrate. Again, the, the man that I'm telling you about here that, 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 that's doing all these deceitful things is known as the man after God's own heart. It doesn't sound like a man who's chasing God, does it? It doesn't sound like he's trying very hard to be a person of character. This is what we find. David said this about his experience. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Now, he's still struggling with this experience. But keep in mind that as we talk about the, the negative sides of his experience, that, that he started off with good news. How joyful is the one? How joyful is the one? 
But this is what David had to learn, and, and his experience is handed down to us so that we learn from his experience. Is that the burden of guilt that we carry has a negative impact on our lives. David said that when he kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. Now, I don't know if you can understand that or experience that, but as I get older, my bones get weaker. I was telling somebody last week that I'm having more difficulty getting down here and sitting down with the children. Sitting down is not the hard part, but getting back up is starting to slow me down some. During the wintertime, I tried to go out for a run, and uh, the cold weather made my knees hurt so bad I couldn't stand it, so I had to, to give up running and take on a different form of cardio because it hurt so much. My bones were becoming brittle. And what guilt does to us when we keep it silent, when we keep it within ourselves, is it, is it becomes a burdensome thing to us. It weighs down the body and the mind. And, and what he's referring to is the bones. It's not so much the, the bone itself in our body, but the structure of the body. It can't perform like it should. Guilt leads to depression. It, it leads to thoughts that we normally wouldn't have about people. And sometimes the, the thoughts that we have about people, they aren't doing the things that we think they're doing. We're only reflecting upon them the things that, that we're hiding within ourselves. It damages our lives, our, our outlook on people, and, and our outlook on our future. It stops us from experiencing Christ to the full potential. When I keep silent, these things happen. You see, it may sound odd, and I know it does, because we're people of character, and we're concerned about what people think about us. But keeping silent about our sin and the guilt that we experience because of it isn't the road to happiness. It's the road to the destruction. We've got to speak about those things that we carry. Now, I'm with you. There are some things that I can't tell some of you. But there are some things I can tell all of you. I don't need to confess my sins to an entire congregation. But I do need to confess them to God. Isn't it amazing, though, that when you do that, we think that it's going to be an awful experience, that we, we go before God and we, we go sometimes with our head hung low, Because maybe sometimes we feel ashamed of what it is that we're going to tell the Father. Or maybe we're not so pleased with ourselves with what we're going to say.
confessing sin. Is about perspective. And how we choose to look at that experience will determine how we feel about going to the Father. This is what I mean. Do you want to spend your life going to somebody constantly telling them how wrong you are? What would that do to your self-esteem? That every day I'd have to say to my wife, honey, I was wrong. And about that, honey, I was wrong. Oh, and again, honey, I was wrong. My life would be full of misery. Because I'm constantly telling myself how wrong I am. But what if confessing our sin wasn't so much about telling God about how wrong we are? but more so about telling God how right he is. Wouldn't that change the, the confessional experience? That instead of going to the Father, just constantly feeling bad, but, but going to the Father and saying, hey, God, you know what? You were right. It's amazing. See, I like to learn things from my experiences. That's, that's, that's one of the things that I celebrate in life. I don't care about telling you about a mistake I made. Don't bother me, because what I want to celebrate is the lesson that I learned from that mistake. And when we go before the Father, there is no condemnation. And that's what people need to, to really let sink in. That when I go before the Father to confess my sins, I'm not going there to say, this is how wrong I am. I'm going before the Father to confirm with him that the word that he gave, that the word that he spoke, that the life that Jesus lived is in fact true and sacred that I am confirming with him that, that what you said was actually right, was actually true. It's a time of giving praise, a time of exalting the Father. And then in that time when we make that admission, we can walk away free from the burden of guilt. And that's what we should do. Walk away free. Don't hang on to it because here's the thing. God is not hanging on to your past sins. He's not hanging on to the, the sin that you just committed. And he's not hanging on to the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow and the day after. David said, How joyful is the one whose sin is covered. I used to love that verse, especially when I took it out of context and wanted it to mean what I wanted it to mean. And, and here's what Tommy wanted it to mean for so many years. That Tommy was going to go out and sin and do whatever he wanted to, how he wanted to, living purposely in an act of rebellion and expect God to cover up my sin from everyone else. You wouldn't know it because the Bible said right here, you know, that, that happy is the one whose sin is covered. And I was happy about that because I'm doing what I want to do. And in my mind, God's covering it up so you never know and you never find out. But that is not an accurate translation of, of what was being said here. Scripture is clear. Be certain your sins will find you out. It's just a fact of life. One way or the other, it's going to find us out. And grace and mercy will get us through each and every time. What it means is this, that he who is joyful, whose sins is covered, talking about the sins 
being covered in the blood of Christ. Blood has always been the requirement for atonement. And though there are many thoughts and ideas on why that is, to my knowledge, and I can be mistaken, Scripture is a little bit vague on specifically why blood is. But Scripture does say this. And I agree with the Scripture on this. That the requirement for blood, for the sacrifice for our salvation is this. That blood is now and always will be the source of life. The book of Habakkuk says this, speaking of God, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon wickedness. And what that means is this, God in all of his holiness cannot look upon sin then how does he see and how does he know would be my question I would think of it like this if you created something precious and dear to you and you worked at it and you shaped it and you molded it into perfection how happy would you be? And if Tommy came along and took his finger and wiped it across your chocolate cake and messed up your design or kicked the block out of the foundation of your building and made it fall, what would your response be? Anger, aggravation, frustration. So think about God in that way when it says that he can't look upon sin. I think what he's really saying is that, that God created humanity in perfection, in his very image. In the very beginning, everything was perfect, right, and well with man and with God. Then sin came along and destroyed all that. So that when God looks upon his perfect creation, instead of seeing that perfection, he sees the flaws and the impact that sin had on it, and it causes him to become rageful. But when that blood is shed from the cross at Calvary, from Jesus' body, it atones for our sin. Kind of like a, a, a filter is put up between God and man. So that when, when God looks at humanity through the blood of Jesus, though he recognizes the sin in our life, he only sees us for the perfection that he created in us originally. 
And it's in that view of humanity that, that he offers hope and possibility. He doesn't see the brokenness, but the possibility of fulfillment. It was God's law for us that drove Jesus to the cross that we can be forgiven. But do we want to live as if we're forgiven? Do we want to to live with the power that God gave us to to rise above evil in our own lives, to to take those things that, that hurt us and put them down and walk away from them once and for all? Or do we want to take the weight that sin puts on our lives and carry it with us everywhere we go? God gives us possibilities and options. And he gives us the ability to take that pain and that guilt and set it down at the foot of the cross to walk away from it to never look back that's how we experience God's joy leave behind those things that bog us down. I like how Jesus said in the scripture when he was talking about people following him, becoming their disciples. He said, you put your hand to the plow and don't look back. And I love that terminology because I grew up in an agricultural community. And I know that that once you hook that plow to a pulling device, which would normally be a a cow or a mule, but in our case, we were poor with my brothers. You start pulling that plow forward guiding it with its handles. Keep your eyes focused on what's in front of you, the cross. And your road will be straight. But if you look back in the process of performing that task, you're going to veer to the left and you're going to veer to the right. And your path that was straight and narrow has now become crooked and broad. So let me invite you to this. Whatever burden you're carrying, bring it to the cross at Calvary and lay it down.
whatever you're struggling with, bring it to the cross and lay it down. Stand up. Turn around. Experience joy for all it's worth. And walk toward the fulfillment of God's will in your life. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you and thank you again for this time that you've given us to come together. And Father, as we prepare to leave here today, help us to remember that, that our sins are forgiven. That, that when we call upon the Son... And, and ask for your forgiveness and ask for the Holy Spirit to come in our lives that there is no reason for us to hold on to what was. That we can take those things that bother us, take those burdens that, that bog us down and we can lay them down at the foot of the cross and walk away, not just with your permission, but with your desire to walk forward into the life that you have for us full of hope, full of expectation, and full of joy. Help us, Father God, to celebrate each and every life, each and every moment, and each and every breath. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And thank you for all of us, my family, and my friends, and and my family, and thank you for all you for us. And thank you, God, for praying. Amen. Amen.